If we've not met yet, look forward to meeting you after the service. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to preach today. Um, my favorite, my favorite week of the year. We're going to be in Philippians three. So if you have a device or a Bible you brought with you, that's going to be where we're going to camp out. I'll dash through some other passages as well, um, but this is the one that's going to do most of the work um, for us, and the one I really want you to primarily remember as you go home today. And we're going to go ahead and lead off with it. So let me pray with you, just pray over the word um, that the Holy Spirit would open it to our hearts and show us pictures of him more clearly, more compellingly, um, that we would love him more. So let's pray. Father, we thank you before we even dive into this, before we even let it examine our hearts and our lives, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work. Because we all walked in here with distractions, we walked in here with random thoughts with some of us with very little sleep. Some of us don't feel great. Some of us are sad or angry. And Lord, we just ask for your Holy Spirit to cut through all of that, that we could worship you, worship you through receiving the word of God. Lord, we love you. We celebrate you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Philippians 3, verse 12. We're going to read just through um, verse 15. Paul says to this young church, not that I have already obtained this. What does he mean by this? If you were to go backwards one verse, he means the resurrection from the dead. Okay? Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Listen, if this is your first December here at Legacy Church, you need to know um, this is my favorite week of the year. I, lo- I love Easter quite a bit. I'm supposed to because I'm a pastor. I loved last week quite a bit. I felt like that was a special week for us as a church. But nothing gets me excited as much as seeing the odometer roll over from one year to the next. It just makes me want to run through a wall. I love it. I can be fairly obnoxious about this week. I could be very annoying. I've already picked on a bunch of you by asking you what your resolutions are. I am that guy. Um, Don't take it personally if I've asked you that. Feel free to lie to me too, by the way, because I know how annoying it can be. I just can't help it. I've practiced resolutions and New Year's resolutions for about 10 years now. I've read books on it, multiple books. You didn't even know that there were books on that, did you? There are. I have a little bit of a shelf dedicated to it. I've taught classes on it. I've taught classes on it here. I've taught clinics at conferences on this. I love I love, 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 but I I realize I'm not the majority in this excitement. I realize where I am at. Um, And listen, there's nothing in the Bible that says you must make New Year's resolutions. Can I just get that out front? There's nothing in there. It's not prescribed. It's not described. It's not there. Some, Some will even take spiritual exception to the idea of making a New Year's resolution. They consider it a pagan idea in and of itself. I'm not quite sure exactly where that came from. I suspect, don't know, I suspect it came from the Greek mythological god Janus, J-A-N-U-S. It's the Greek god of transition, doors, gates. 
You could see little logos of this God with two heads, one looking back and one looking forward. It's what January is named after, by the way. And I think that's probably the idea of staking claim to that month as a new beginning and putting the old behind you. It might have given birth to what we now call the New Year's resolution. I don't know. I kind of somewhat doubt it. But here's the thing. It doesn't really matter. Because when it comes to culture, you don't have to discard all of culture. A lot of culture can be redeemed. Let me explain what I mean. I'm not exactly sure where this came from, but I've used this for years because it's so helpful. When you bump into the furniture of culture, how our society looks at life, there are some things that you could receive wholesale. You don't have to rinse it off. Thanksgiving would be an example of that, right? We, 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 don't, have to, we don't have to sanitize Thanksgiving. We could eat good food with good friends and family, and we could be thankful to the Lord. We could take it as is. Some pieces of culture, however, we have to reject. You can't use any of it. Drunkenness would be in that category. Uh, Pornography would be in that category. We can't really have anything to do with it. But then there are pieces of culture that can be redeemed, right? Halloween would be a good example of that, right? I think New Year's resolutions can be one of those things in that column, something that we could redeem. Because our culture understands very deeply the, the, the allure to turning over a new leaf, to a fresh start, right? It's ubiquitous in culture. It, it, that's, that's when gyms swell with new contracts. Your inbox right now is full of things, entities, groups, companies, trying to get you to click on something to be the bigger, better, faster version of you and your best year ever, 2024, right? So our culture understands this very much, but these resolutions... New Year's resolutions need to be redeemed. We must redeem them. We, as a church, as believers, resolve to change for very different reasons than the world does. Right? In fact, let's look at one of these in 2 Thessalonians. So 2 Thessalonians is a fascinating passage. You could probably, if your Bible is as big as mine, you could just turn right a few pages and land there. You don't have to go to the table of contents. It's pretty much right there. Just take, take a few pages. And we're going to be in, stay where you're at if you don't want to turn there. If you're not that fast in the Bible, stay in Philippians because that is going to be our key passage. But 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 11 is going to be helpful for us. This is Paul speaking to another little church. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's praying. He's praying for something specific. He's praying for their resolve to do good works, their resolutions to move forward, to succeed. But he's praying for them to succeed by God's grace through his spirit and for the glory of Jesus This, by the way, is where we start to see how we could redeem this from culture. I'm going to be praying this for you this year as well, by the way, right? That God would achieve in you what you resolve to do this year by the power of his spirit for the glory of Christ. You see, that's one way we redeem this is we grow by God's spirit, right? We grow by his spirit. There there, there are many things you can do, you could change about your life without the Holy Spirit. Right? People do it all the time. They quit smoking, they learn Spanish, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. Listen, there are some things you're never going to be able to flip over without the Holy Spirit. It's just not going to happen. 
Right? Now, God gives this, this Holy Spirit as a grace to us, favor given to us totally despite us. And, and why? Why would we change by the Spirit according to his grace? To glorify Christ, to lift Christ. That's one way in which we redeem our resolutions. Another one is that our resolutions are always subservient to the gospel. This is important for some of you, maybe some of what you need to remember most as you leave. Here's the gospel for you as it pertains to New Year's resolutions. You're free to fail, totally free. You're free to have the same boring list of resolutions you had last year and the year before. You know what I'm talking about, right? You're free to fail in February, scratch your head, pick them back up in April and try again, just to fail pretty quickly after that to pick it up again in August, to fail, and then just decide, what am I doing? And then just blow it off until the end of the year where I will see you right up here <laughs> in 52 weeks. You're free to do that, right? And this is why. Because upon your failure to keep resolutions, your value doesn't shift in God's eyes. Not even one bit. This is what I find fascinating. Your value comes from Jesus' work, not yours. You're free from the burden of being perfect. You're free from the burden of trying to keep up with everyone else and be massively impressive. Listen, you're also free from trying to prove something to yourself, prove something to God. You're free from proving something to your neighbor. You're free from the burden of being impressive in this culture. You see, the gospel allows you and me to strive, reach, stretch, press on from a place of rest, which doesn't seem like it should go together this rested striving, that we could reach and push and dig and grow, but to do so from a settled, content, and relaxed place. But that's what the gospel affords you and me, because we're already loved, already approved. You can't be more likable. You, you can't make God more affectionate towards you. Because if we could, the gospel's not really good news anymore. It's just another thing that we have to really strive in order to get him to smile upon us, right? But this is also what the gospel says, that you are free from being powerless for one more year. You are free from having the same aimless living that you did last year, free from the same old sins that win over you, free from the same old boring addictions free from the same old idols. You're free from all of that as well. So listen, some of us are due for significant change. You might not give a rip about New Year's resolution, but the Christian posture is one that is looking to change, looking to have resolved growth and change. That we know, right? But our resolved change strategies, they cannot look like the world's. Jonathan Edwards, he wrote something down a long time ago. In the 1700s, when he was a teenager, if you don't know who he is, he was alive in the 1700s. He was a massive part of the first great awakening. He was a Puritan preacher. But as a teenager, and as I say this, I want you to think about what you did as a teenager, right? I can't, I can't keep from thinking how far behind this guy I was, you know. But this guy wrote 70 resolutions, life resolutions, not New Year's ones. They're a little bit more broad they're not smart goals. They can be specific and measurable and tracked and accountable. They're just kind of broad. But here are some of them. Number seven, he's resolved to never do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. That's pretty cool. Number nine, I like this one. To think much on all occasions about my own dying. 
and of the common things which are involved with and surround death. Does that sound weird to you? It shouldn't. When you think about your death, it will reprioritize your week pretty quick. We've talked about that up here from the stage a few times, how a good goal for every Christian is to write out their own funeral speech. Don't leave it to a pastor. You write it out. And maybe to eulogize the person next to you and not wait until they're dead before you say something good to them, right? So we've talked about having an eye towards death even as we live. Number 20, resolved, Edward says, to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. (laughs) Feel free to Google him and read all 70. It's pretty impressive. But this word resolved, this word resolved carries me back to this passage in Philippians, the one we led with. Because the Philippian church was fascinated with athletics, right? The, the Olympics had been around for almost 800 years, okay? That's a long time. And it wasn't far from Philippi that Olympia started to see the rise of what we now call the Olympics. What, what Paul is doing is he's painting a visual picture of a runner pushing forward, pressing forward, and not looking back. That's the image he's trying to paint for you and me. He's straining to ascend the podium for a prize, And the prizes back then were mostly symbolic, like a wreath or something like a wreath. But what Paul is saying is the prize for you and me, those in Christ, is the upward call of God. It is a knowledge and an experience of God, an intimate experience with God. That's the prize. That's the prize. But Luke, I thought we already had God. I thought upon salvation we already had God in the fullest. We do. But our experiential knowledge of God, how we experience him, that's certainly not full, is it? I mean, you've grown. You've you've had moments where you've read a passage, heard a preacher, read a book, heard a song, something, where you felt like you were so much closer to the Lord. And you enjoyed it, didn't you? To discover more of who God was, to plumb the depths just a few more feet. Do you know what happened whenever you enjoyed the Lord in that moment? He was glorified. He was glorified in the fact that you enjoyed him more. 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, stay where you're at. John says this, beloved, we are God's children now. We are connected to the Lord. We are, in, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when, we, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We have God and God has us if you are in Christ. But that doesn't stop Paul from pressing and straining. That's interesting. And oh, how we stop straining as a church. At some point, all of us, after Christ, will find a season of sleepwalking, aimless living, purposeless, fruitless living. I meet far too many Christians who have no resolve to experience more of God, not interested, not looking to discover God any more than what they already know. They put minimal effort into overcoming sin. Minimal. They refuse to stretch. It's aimless. It's an aimless life. Listen, I've been to hundreds of races, foot races mostly, both as a coach and as an athlete. And my favorite part is not who wins, it's not who loses, it's not any of that. It's the strain. I love seeing the exhausted strain. There's just something about it. I think it's inspiring probably. But I love seeing the the breathing that is met its limit the veins that are popping. I love seeing how the muscles are so taut, so under pressure that it looks like they just can't go anymore. I love seeing just the the 
focus in the athlete. I love seeing the collapse at the end. There's something about it. I can't get enough of that. This is the picture he's painting for you and for me. The total aim, the total focus. This is what he says to another young church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 9. Stay where you're at. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. He's formatted in his training, his resolve. He's got order. He's focused on it. Listen, our resolve has to grow. We have to have a controlled aim and a focus to our resolve to grow. You want to call it a resolution? Call it a resolution. You want to do it on New Year's? Do it on New Year's. And we do these things, we resolve to change, not so that we win affection from the Lord, but because we already have. We already have. Jesus has handed his kids the trophy. Therefore, friend, you are free from apathy, free from being aimless. Free from having one more year where you don't bear any fruit at all. And listen, the more you discover God this year, the more you'll enjoy him. And guess what happens when you enjoy the Lord? You'll want to experience and discover more of him. And he'll be glorified in that. And as you see God glorified in your life and how you live it, guess what you'll want to do? You'll want to discover even more. And as you do, and as you look for pearls, as you look for gold, as you look for the treasures of who God is, and you want to see him as clearly as possible, and you're straining, and you're straining, he's glorified, and you'll enjoy him more. And it goes on and on and on. But I'm going to get back to the original question. Do we really need to make resolutions? Do we really need to make a resolved change? Do we need to formalize it in any way? This is what David Pallison says on it. He's got a word on the subject. I like what he says. He says, when you resolve to do something, it means you formally express what you believe, will, or intend. It is a stand you take, a direction you choose. After a thought and decision, you commit yourself to take steps along a trajectory which changes the destination of your life. Put that way, the entire Christian life might be conceived as a lifelong determination to make and walk out the new creation everyday resolutions. Man, there's some, there's some powerful words and phrases in just that short little bit. Resolutions provoke thought, formal expression, life-changing destination, commitment. I, I think it's important to know what you want to be. I think it's important to know where you are. I think it's important to have format to it, to have formal, dedicated, expressed will and intent. I told this years ago, but on running trails that I'm unfamiliar with, so we're talking in the woods, not on the roads, oftentimes I will come across a map of that area. It's got that treasured red dot on it like an outlet mall would or an amusement park, but just to let you know where you're at in the trail system. And most of the time, I feel like I can intuit where I'm at. And I'm always a little surprised that I'm not where I thought I was. I'm always looking at the map, and I think to myself, yo, I'm really happy I looked at this map because I thought I was over here. I would have been really running the wrong way, right? So I'm happy for the map. But several years ago, I ran at a large state park north of here, and I showed up early in the morning, and I was the only person there, only car in the parking lot. It was early in the morning, and I set out on what was going to be a one-hour run. One hour, okay? Now, here's the trick. They took all the signs down. That sign with the red dot, gone. I don't know why. Maybe they're working on it. Who cares? But all the trail markers, 
gone, and all the leaves had fallen, so you don't really see a trail. I don't know what's trailing, what's just running through the woods like a crazy person. But if you kind of squint your eyes, you could kind of see, well, I think the trail goes this way. And hey, I'm a smart guy. I went to college. I'll figure it out. I thought I could just intuit where the trails went, so I left. Five hours later, I get back to my car. Five hours. I thought I was going to die. If I had a flare gun, I would have fired it off. I was crying. I think I cried a little bit. I was lost. Listen, pro tip. It helps to know where you're at. Positional awareness is critical. Live your life without a red dot, friend, and you will go places, and you'll even be tired when you get there, but you'll probably be in the wrong places, right? Smart to think it through. Formally expressing your resolve after deep thought. Formally expressing your resolve to change and to grow, to glorify Christ, that's valuable. It's valuable. This should be a practice we all adopt, not just on New Year's, just because the culture does. We should be adopting it all the time, all of the time. But before you do, before you do, before you take the courageous process of writing something down to say, this is how I want to live my life different. This is how I want to look different. I want you to ask yourself, why? Man, this is so important. Why? This is largely what's going to determine whether your resolution is redeemed or carnal. Too many of our resolutions to change and be different are mostly about improving our self-glory. It's about just looking better for ourselves, for whoever. We want to prove ourselves to God sometimes. Isn't that where a lot of our, I want to read the, the Bible this year, isn't that where some of that comes from, if we're honest? I want to pray more this year. Of course, we don't really quantify what more is. We just say more. Is it, is it, is it because you hope in that that God looks upon you and smiles and likes you more? Or are you in fact trying not to just discover him so you enjoy him, but just hoping that he doesn't hate you? Some of us, we want to be impressive and prove ourselves to others. We want to get shredded. We want to read books, whatever it is. Why? Why do you want to do that? Why is that important? Listen, reading more of the Bible, reading it all the way through every year, that's a great New Year's goal. But why are you doing it? Why? One of the questions I think is very helpful, if you ever find yourself helping somebody, someone comes to you and asks for help, it's always, it's always helpful to say, what would that do for you? I want to do this differently this year. Luke, I want to recover four or five hours in my work week this year. <clears throat> I find I just don't have enough time. I want more time, Luke. Okay, we could do that. We could work on that together. But what would it do for you to have that much time? Well, I mean, it, I guess it'd give me time to, I guess, go to the gym. I never get to work out. I don't even get to take a walk. Okay, well, why is that valuable to you? There's nothing wrong with having more time. There's nothing wrong with working out. But why do you want to do it? Why ask that question, what would that do for you? Because I'm trying to ascertain where they're anchoring their hope. I'm trying to find out what their value is. I think that's not an inconsequential question. Just don't make the mistake of doing great things for the wrong reasons. People have wasted their whole lives doing that. Doing great things for dumb reasons. One more caution. As we redeem our resolutions and our change strategies, whatever you want to call it. In thinking and in praying about what you will do, be careful of your reflection. Be careful. Paul says this, that he forgets what lies behind him. Why does he do that? What does that even mean? Does it mean just be ignorant 
to pretend that the past doesn't matter? I mean, no. I mean, again, to know where the red dot is valuable means to tell you where you're at. Reflection helps you understand what you've come from. What is he talking about here? Listen, many of us find it hard to move forward because of what is behind us. As you reflect on this last year, be careful of pride coming in. But be careful also of shame coming in. Shame is so quick. It'll try to recalibrate you by saying that you're incapable of change. And boy, does it have a resume to point to. I mean, doesn't shame just tell you, you can't do that. You've tried that every year. You can't change there. How many times have you tried to change there and you've not been able to pull it off? You see, there's a difference between shame and conviction. We say it up here all the time. I think it's Worth mentioning again, because we could get them mixed up. Conviction is the, the, the voice of the Holy Spirit telling you one of your actions is wrong. Your life is spent doing wrong things. Shame says, you, friend, are wrong. You're not a good fit for God. He's not a good fit for you. That's shame. You've got to be really careful, because the gospel will reframe us. I've been super sad whenever I sit across the table or, or something from somebody that has this unimaginable potential, and let, yet they're locked down because of something that happened to them in the past or something they did in the past. It's like they can't move the needle. They can't move forward. It's like they're trapped. If that's you, by the way, Paul understands you. Listen, that guy, he had some regrets, did he not? I mean, think about him getting up out of bed every morning, his feet hit the ground. You don't think the enemy was quick to say, Paul, do I even need to remind you of all the people that you exterminated? Do I even need to remind you of the things that came out of your mouth, the things that you've done with your own hands? Do I need to run? Paul had to struggle with this. He says, forgetting what's behind me. This is powerful for us. Listen to me. You can change. Oh, you can change. And here's why. Because God, from the treasury of his own favor and his grace, he gives us his spirit to change us. He does it. This is what he says in Romans 8. This is to a different church. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. <laughs> the same spirit that lifted Jesus from a cold, dark grave in the earth is alive in you. You can change. You can change. It doesn't even matter what you were unable to do last year. ChatGPT told me this morning that I have been alive for 17,476 days as of today. But tomorrow is day number one for me, right? Just like many of you. I have a past full of regrets and misfires. Just like you, some of my resolutions are reheated. I had them last year too. Not so much though. But I trust that God can change me. I trust that God can change me. This is how Jonathan Edwards would say it after he listed his 70. He said, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. So Edwards is agreeing from, with Paul, which I assume he read quite a bit of Paul. We submit our goals to God depending on him for our growth and holiness as he sees fit for our health and for his glory. 
This is effectively what he says in Philippians 2. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Therefore, some of our goals are okay to fail. (laughs) They are. But why I have so much confidence that we can all change is that it is God who works in our work. It's God who works in our work. So let's go back to the original question. No. You do not need to formally list out your New Year's resolution. I won't ask any more people today. It'll be hard for me. I can restrain it, though, all right? But you don't have to. You don't have to do that. It's not in the Bible. No shame. But can I ask you this? What does your current plan to change look like? What does it look like? You know, as a pastor, when people look to join churches or try to explore what a church is like, one of the questions I'll get, I don't get it often, but I get it, I get it enough occasionally. Luke, what does the discipleship process look like here? What is Legacy's discipleship process? And I know what they're asking. If someone asks me that, they've been around the church world a little bit, right? But in our early years, I remember getting caught on my heel and asking the guy, well, first, you tell me what your discipleship process is. What are you doing to grow? Because if you're not aggressive about changing your life, there's no lever I can pull. There's no book I can shove in front of you that's magical. What are you already doing to grow? Truth be told, I think many of us have no plan. Really no plan to change. Really no hope that 2024 is going to look any different than 2023. Let me ask you some questions as you think about what you want this next year to look like. What sin is hard for you right now? It just keeps kicking you around. Or maybe it's an addiction. You pick something up that you can't put down. What is it? Maybe you want to take something out of your life. Maybe you want to add something into your life, change something, alter something, stretch something, shrink something. What is it? But here's the big question. What will that do for you? Why? Why do you want to do that? You cannot skip that question. Why? Man, here's a couple things you can expect before we finish. A couple of things you can expect if you do take the steps of formalizing and formally expressing a change growth strategy, a resolution for this next year. You can expect loss. I'm going to be frank with you. Loss. In order to add something, you're going to have to eliminate some things in your life. Okay? We don't, we don't really add resolutions, we install them, which means we have to uninstall some other things in our life. And that hurts. One of my favorite leadership quotes is, there's no growth without change, no change without loss, and no loss without pain. You will only grow to the level of pain you can take. That's just a fact. This is why New Year's resolutions die, by the way, isn't it? Is the pain we feel in trying to chase those things down? Or why really any goal does. Nobody has a great, beautiful, idealistic goal for the new year, and then somewhere around March just gets tired of looking at it because it's not as shiny anymore. That never happens. You know what? After all, I don't want abs. You know, after all, I don't want to read real well this year. Nobody does that. It's because of the pain of something we had to put down in order to pick that up. You, you want to hear an even harsher truth? For every one thing you pick up, you probably need to put two things down. This is the cost of change. If you want to develop a robust prayer life, you want to consume Scripture, not just read it, consume it, meditate on it, memorize it. If you, that's got a price tag to it. There are some things that you're going to have to let go of 
in order to pick that up. There is no growth without that pain. Here's another thing you can expect, the second and last thing, and that's failure. You can expect failure. You see, change, it occurs in small degrees over a long period of time. When you fail, will you give yourself grace? Again, this is how we redeem our resolutions. Will you give yourself grace? Will your change strategies be grace-anchored? i got to say it's in failure that I've gone back to my goals to see what was wrong. Maybe I had a bad motivation. Maybe I was unwilling to put some things down. Maybe it was a great goal for the wrong year. That happens, right? Maybe my expectations were a little unreal. Okay, maybe. But the point is to enjoy Jesus more, not to be a perfect version of myself. So I'm free to fail, and I'm free to go back to the drawing board. Every Monday, I look over my New Year's resolutions. I could be a real dork about them, right? I mean, right now, I'm restraining myself. I'd love to teach a class on how to do it. But every Monday, I kind of glance over them so they could keep building on them. But in July, on 4th of July, I always look at them all over again, and I'll tighten the screws on some of them, and I'll loosen the screws on others because I was a little off on my expectations. But I, but I could be graceful with myself, and you can too. You could look in three months and say, man, I really wanted to have read more of the Bible this year. But I guess I blew it for another year, maybe next year. You don't have to do that. You could just pick up the Bible and start reading. You could give yourself some grace. Because here's the thing, again, from a New Year's nerd, you actually have zero chance of setting perfect goals today for your next year. Zero chance. It's not going to happen. Some of the goals you set will be too hard. Some will be far too easy. Some will be stupid, right? And you'll be like, why did I even put that down? I had no chance of knocking that out of the park. You're free to build your goals. You're free to rebuild them. Because God cannot like you, love you, approve you, and accept you any more as a success than as a failure. So we can restfully strive. With a rested heart, we could stretch, reach, we can get it done from a rested place. Beautiful passage in Titus 2, which is Paul speaking again. He says, Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Who are zealous for good works. There's nothing aimless about that. A, a zealousness to do good works is quite, is quite literally the opposite of being aimless. Jesus was zealous for good work on the cross so that you and I are free to be zealous in this world without the, the threat of punishment coming down on us. Do us. We're free because God is merciful. His good work has been credited to your account and all of your broken goals and broken vows have been credited to him. This is important for us. We're about to take communion here in a moment and close. And all, you know, what this is, and I say it all the time, this, this is a monument for us. A symbol, yeah. But it's a monument that we look at. And it shows us the price of the resolve of Jesus. It's one thing to say he was zealous for us. It's another thing to see it symbolized in a broken body and spilt blood. That shows us how zealous he was. That shows us how much he did not beat the air. This shows us how much he pressed and strained, knowing that we couldn't. Knowing that we couldn't be perfect. Knowing that we could never improve that much. This 
bread shows us a body crushed under the weight of broken goals, broken vows, misfired intentions. We have juice that's symbolic of the wine that covers all of our broken promises and vows, all of the resolutions that we kind of set and we kind of knew at the time we weren't going to follow through with it. It's a monument of the cost for our prize for the upward call in Jesus. So we're going to take this together in a moment. But listen, if you're here or you're watching right now, you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian or maybe you're not sure, but you're kind of semi-sure you're not. Maybe you said something, did something as a kid. You walked forward at a camp, but you've always wondered, but you're pretty sure you're not. Listen, if that's you, let me just say, your straining and striving and fighting has been for the wrong prize and in the wrong direction. You must be exhausted. You've got to be tired. Listen, that straining could be over. It could be over because the Holy Spirit does a real work in us. I mean, you've tried to be good. You've tried to be proper. You've tried to behave. But it fails so fast, right? And this is why, because the change you really crave is supernatural. <laughs> you could quit smoking. People can do that. You could quit speeding in your car. That's not that difficult. You, you, could, you could maybe stop scrolling on your phone a little. That's, that's, that's doable. But the anxiety you feel, the depression, the insecurity before God, that's what the Holy Spirit does. Some boulders only he can push, right? The change you crave is supernatural. This is what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 36. He says, God, I will give you a new heart, God says, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The life that you're really looking for can only be lived with a real heart that's beating for Christ. A heart that sees the blood on your own hands with remorse and sees the blood on the cross with, with gigantic wonder that God would do something like that for you. You can't see that with a heart of stone only a heart that he has given you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And friend, when you fail, God's grace and mercy does not. That you could take to the bank. Make this your day number one. Make this your day number one.